September 4th, 2001, a normal day. It was the day our guests showed up at Fort Benning, Georgia for basic training. One week later, the world changed. Great timing, friend. You speak, we listen. Conversations connecting people. This is the Chuck Williams Show. Welcome to the Chuck Williams Show. And somebody asked me today, what is this podcast all about? And what I said was, it's a conversation. So for the next hour, we're going to have a conversation. And I'm very fortunate to be welcoming in Jonathan Shusky. He's a U.S. Army soldier. But more importantly to me, Jonathan's my friend, a good friend. Jonathan, welcome. Glad to have you here. Good to be here, man. Um, you have a very intriguing story. Um, and... I want to get get into it very quickly, and I think people will figure this out as we go along. But tell me a little bit about about yourself, where you grew up, and and you know just sort of a little bit about who you are. Uh, I was born and raised in North Carolina, a uh, little place called Thomasville, North Carolina. I tell people all the time that you've probably got a piece of furniture somewhere in your house that's from that area. Um, they do the the big furniture market a couple times a year, and uh, that's that's. I mean, t- we we grow tobacco and and build furniture. That's that's where we that's what we do. That and, and play basketball. We're pretty good at basketball in that state too. Um, but yeah, grew up there my whole life. Um, then decided at nineteen to to venture out and join the army and uh, and go see the world and got to see some parts of it that was really cool, and then got to go see some parts of it that maybe maybe not so cool and. Uh, but and now here we are, twenty years at the end of that thing. So, well, and that's kind of what I want to start. You enlisted in the United States Army as a nineteen-year-old kid in August of twenty in two thousand and one. You show up at Fort Benning on September the fourth, two thousand and one. I mean, what were you thinking at that time? I mean, at, at that point, I was thinking about the the enlistment bonus that I had just signed up and gotten. And I was thinking about the, the, the GI bill and the free college tuition that was going to come at the end of five years. And, um, I was, I, you know, when I showed up to basic training, I wasn't, I wasn't nervous, wasn't scared. It was just, you know, it, my dad had been army back in the day and he'd kind of given me all the, uh, I mean, a little bit of a gap between the two of us enlisting, but, uh, he'd kind of given me the lowdown. I, I felt pretty comfortable um, it wasn't until, wasn't until about a week later that I felt uncomfortable and kind of <laughs> felt like, man, this is, uh, not, not necessarily what I thought I was going to be doing. So how did they tell in basic training, how did they tell y'all what had happened on September the 11th? Um, so we all kind of saw it together. Um, we were <laughs> for whatever reason. So on September 4th, we show up, they shave our heads. On September the 11th, at like 9 o'clock in the morning, we're in line at the barbershop getting our heads shaved again. Like, And you've seen the top of my head. I don't grow very much up there. But but we're going through the line to get our heads shaved again a week later. And um, it was it was like 9 o'clock, 9.15, whatever it was. And, and I remember the guys working in the barbershop there had a little radio just kind of up on the wall over there they were listening to. And music stopped. And we're listening to a newsman tell us about the world trade center has been hit with an airplane and, 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 and everybody at that point, like, we're just like everybody else, you know, we don't, we thought, man, like, how can that even happen? Like what pilot 
<laughs> didn't see that building there, you know. And as the day went on, um, you know, it was one of those things where the, the drill sergeants kind of kept coming and giving us information as they found it out. It was one of those things that they weren't going to – a lot of times, like, you get, you get left in the dark in basic training. Like, you don't know what's going on in the world. And, like, there are guys in basic training right now that probably have no idea about the verdict that we all just heard a couple hours ago. Uh, but that was one of those moments, like, they weren't going to keep us in the dark. They kind of kept us, po- like, hey, this is what happened. We know this now. We know that. And it was really, you know, by the end of that day, like, we all kind of knew, like, this is this is not good for us and the, the career path that we chose as infantrymen <laughs> in the Army. Um, this this probably spells combat at some point that we weren't, you know, we didn't, we didn't sign up thinking that was going to happen, so. Well, we weren't. The United States was not at war when you signed up. Yep. Before you got out of basic training, we were in a full-fledged war. Yeah. Yeah, I left here uh, January of 2002 is when I left Fort Bend and graduated and, and took off and, and headed to Hawaii to my first duty station. So, um, yeah, that was a, it was a weird few months. Like, it was, well, it was 16 weeks, I guess. We had the two-week exodus for Christmas and then came back and finished up um, – but it was, it was an adventure. Uh, just the basic training part of it, like trying to piece together everything that's going on in the world and, and what's about to happen to us. It was, it was pretty surreal, to be honest with you. Did basic training take on a new urgency for you? I, I think it took on a new urgency for everybody. Um, you, you know, it's like I, I don't want to say it's like any other job. I don't think any of those guys, any of those drill sergeants, or anybody ever treat it that way. But I, I guess. You know, it gets to a point, like like you said, we weren't at war. And and uh, there's probably some element of just going through the motions, you know, getting guys through basic training, sending them off to their unit. Um, I think we definitely started looking at how we do that stuff a lot differently. And, and I can tell you, like that group of guys that I went through basic training with, I, I know some of Some of them are still here in the area. Like I ran into one at the golf course the other day. Uh, we were bunkmates in basic training. And, um, and we talked about that, like, you know, thing, things changed with our group and, and, and the guys that came after us and, and went through there, it the was world changed. It, well, it was just, it got, it got a lot more intense. I, I can put like, you know, that first week that I was there at the 30th AG, yeah, you had drill sergeants yelling at you when you weren't in the right place at the right time, that kind of thing. But there was no, there was no real urgency. You could, you could feel everybody's attitude shifted after 9-11 and it got it got really serious at that point and i think it's it's stayed that way over the last 20 years you're right now you're right now gearing toward the end of your army career you, your papers end on september the 30th of this year right yep i i start terminal leave on august the 1st and so uh and then yeah my my official retirement date will be 30 september so you President Biden announced last week, your commander in chief, that the that the U.S. will pull out of Afghanistan by September 11th of this year. So you're a 20 year guy in the United States Army, and you're you went in a week before the war started, and you're leaving three weeks after it's over. You can pretty much tell what's going to define your Army career. Yeah, it's uh, I you know I hadn't really sat down and thought about how long 20 years really is until a few weeks ago. And I found this app and you can basically go from this date to that. It tells you like exactly how many days it's been and all this stuff. And so 
I pulled that open and I started from September 4th and went through to, to that, whatever that day was, like I said, three weeks ago, whatever. And, um, and then I did it all the way back to my birthday. And so like, I've been alive for something like 14,000 and some odd days. And then I looked at the number from September 4th until then. And it was, uh, like 7,000 something. And man, when I, when I sat, like, it was the first time I had even thought about, You've spent by the, by the time I retire, I'll have spent more than half my life doing this job, um, and so yeah, and so looking back at uh, you know from September fourth to now, and you know the four trips to Afghanistan, it's it, it took me it literally took me until just a few weeks ago to kind of put all that into perspective and and how big that really is. Um, <laughs> it didn't feel that long most of the time, honestly, and so now looking back at it, it's like man, that's a that's a big chunk of like if I live to be eighty years old, that's that's a quarter of my life that I spent doing this. So, um, yeah, it's kind of a kind of a big thing. Well, and you, you know, it's interesting because you know I'm twenty years older than you, and I'm still a few years from retirement. I mean, to get to where you are now, to retire at forty, and and we'll get into what you're going to do next. It's fascinating. Believe me, hang tight. It's going to be fun. Um, but to get where you are now, I can't imagine at 40 retiring. I can't imagine Me doing <laughs> Yeah, okay. <laughs> you win. Uh, you know, it's like, what are you going to do? Play golf? Yeah. Uh, uh, that's an inside joke, people. Uh, okay, so when you joined the Army, could you have honestly picked out Afghanistan on a map? No. I couldn't have told you anything about it. Like I, I'm telling you right now, if my life had depended on it, and you said find this place on a globe, I'd be a dead man. I, I would. I didn't have a clue. <laughs> I, I I will tell you this. I knew it was somewhere near Russia because I had watched Rambo. That's <laughs> that's about all I got for you. Like I I didn't have any idea where that place was. So you I'd have been I'd have been in the favorite guy. I'd have been in the right area of the world somewhere, but I couldn't have picked which one it was. <laughs> so. This place, all of a sudden, this place becomes the center of the world's attention after 9-11. And, you know, I mean, when President Bush stood at ground zero and said, we're going to find them and they're going to pay for this, and I'm paraphrasing it probably poorly, but you weren't really sure who they were or where they were, but you quickly found out. Yeah, we, um, I can tell you, so my first deployment was in 2004, um, when I was part of the 25th Infantry Division in, in Hawaii, and, um, I remember on that first deployment, we were, you remember the, the, like the, the deck of cards that they always talked about, like this that guy had, was the ace and this guy was, ace of spades like, that was, was a real ben, thing. Bin and Laden so, was the ace of spades. Yeah. And so we, we had this deck of cards and we called, we called them baseball cards. Like we, and it, we had like information about each guy and all this stuff. And, um, <laughs> during that first deployment, there were some of those kind of local guys that we were kind of out looking for. Like, I'm like, like we weren't out looking for Bin Laden. Like we didn't know he was, if he was there or somewhere else. Like at that point he was a ghost is all we knew. But we started referring to those guys as unicorns because we couldn't find them. Like we, and, and we, we got to the point where we were like, we don't even know if these people are real, man. Um, and, and, and eventually we, we, we found a couple of them here and there. And, and, but it was, uh, it was wild. It was, <laughs> it's like being on another planet. 
you know, like I, I kid you not, like going from <laughs> Fort Benning, Georgia, this area, go to Afghanistan and just take a look around. It's it's like you're on a whole different world. And somewhere. you deployed from Honolulu to Afghanistan. That was well, and Honolulu from Columbus, Georgia, also feels like a whole different <laughs> world. So, um, yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, that first deployment, we, you know, and we still didn't in 2004. IED was a like that was still kind of a foreign thing like that was it was improvised explosive device yeah and so and like everybody knows what that means in 2004 in Afghanistan like we rarely talked about IEDs there weren't many of now in Iraq different story like those guys were dealing with it on a daily basis at that point um, and then it eventually became very prominent in Afghanistan as well but it was. Um, it was it was weird, like you know, in Iraq, you 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 saw the videos of tanks and Bradleys and all this stuff rolling down the streets, and um, there was none of that in Afghanistan. There's nowhere like there's nowhere to drive a tank in Afghanistan. Where are you gonna do with it? Like it's all mountains and rock, and I mean it's just so it was um, it was it was a ground fighting like it was literally like if you're gonna be an infantryman, this is the place to go to war because that's all we can fit in there. Like nobody else. It was. Take a helicopter, and we're going to drop you off at this place, and now you're on your own, pal. Um, and so, it was. yeah, it was <laughs> – I'm sitting there thinking back about it, you know, like some of that stuff just comes back to your mind just racing back in, and it is wild thinking about how much has changed since then and what, and, was and the, what that was what like. What were your thoughts when you when your boot first hit soil in Afghanistan? Um, honestly – so when I first stepped foot in Afghanistan, I was really kind of amazed, honestly. We we showed up at, uh, let's see, the, so that first appointment, we, we flew into Kandahar. Kandahar doesn't, like, that doesn't look like the rest of Afghanistan. Like, you're talking about, like, this is, uh, well, I, I mean, it's a, a major air po- a major airfield or whatever, and there were buildings and, like, all, and it was not what I had envisioned. Like, we stepped off of a C-130 and... And it was like we were in a little town or a city or whatever. Um, it didn't really hit me until we went out to our final destination there in Afghanistan, which on that deployment was in uh, a little place called Ghazni. Um, when that when that uh, <laughs> when that CH forty seven touched down and we walked off the back of it and it left, and then it was just silent, and you realized, oh, like here we are like we're in the middle of this place and there's nobody else around that's when it was um i'll be honest with you my i can't repeat what my first thought was on your show um (laughs) my second thought was immediately man what did you do this time like (laughs) what have you gotten yourself into (laughs) you know (laughs) you're not making furniture or growing tobacco anymore when you you know when you look at afghanistan now four deployments there how did it change from 2004 to 2018 when you went the last time? Um, and you went with SFAB the last time, I right? I did. Yep. Which was a special unit essentially designed to to kick down doors and find bad guys. Uh, not, well, no, not really kicking down any doors and finding bad guys. We were the, the SFAB um, – we were there to train and advise the Afghan military on how to go and kick the doors down and find the bad guys themselves. Um, which, and, and look, I'm going to tell you, I know this is a little bit off of, of what you just asked me, but 
the SVAB, and I want to make this very clear, I, like I don't speak for the Army or the Department of Defense or anybody else, but in my opinion, that unit and what the SVAB has done over the last few years, like I believe that is one of the reasons that we're able to leave Afghanistan right now. Um, enabling the Afghan military and, and their forces to go and do what we'd really been doing for 18, 19 years is why we're going to get to leave now. Um, but I, I, as far as like the way it's changed, I, I can tell you this. In 2004, we worked with some of the Afghan National Army guys, and it's not much of an exaggeration to say that there were some of those guys when we handed them an M16, they didn't know which end of it to shoot from. I mean, that I'm being honest. Like these were, like they're farmers and, you know, brick masons or like wh or whatever it was that they did that got handed a rifle and said welcome to the army man they didn't and they don't do basic training the same way at least not in 2004 that we do it here in the united states um and so we we spent time working with those guys they went on patrols with us like we uh, there were really over the four deployments that i did there were very few times that i ever went and did anything that there wasn't some sort of afghan presence with us when we went to do it um, and that, that first deployment, we spent a lot of time worrying about one of those guys killing us, not on purpose, like just by mistake. Cause they didn't know any better. Um, we didn't, we didn't think about that nearly as much in 2018. Um, they, uh, we, we've, we came a long way in training those guys. They came a long way in training their own forces and, and how they do things and, and being more proficient. Um, so, yeah, there was, there was quite a difference from, from 2004 to 2018. Um, man, it's like not even the, the same army, you know, really. I mean, it was you went from, like I said, a bunch of guys that just got handed a weapon and said, welcome to the army. And then in 2018, I'm, look at that. <laughs> they're they're still not doing the, the things the way we do them here, and they probably never will. But absolutely a complete you know one eighty from what I saw that first deployment as a as a young soldier. So it's a uh, it's really remarkable how far the whole place has come. To be to be honest with you, did you get to know many of the locals when you were over there? So we did. Um, I, I, I think you've probably seen the a picture that I've shared on, on Facebook and, and stuff a couple of times um, with a little, at the time he was like, he was like eight years old, this little kid that every time he saw us on patrol coming through their little village, he always wanted to talk. And what, when we would sit down and have a, a meeting with the elders or whoever, he always wanted to come over and, and, and be around. And, um, you know, he brought us, brought us chai and, and snacks and all this stuff. And, and, and I, I took that picture with him. It was really right before we left um, in 2011 on our way back. But, uh, but like, I saw that kid, like, almost weekly. Like, he was always there. And, um, and, and there were a lot of the locals. Like, on those deployments, when you're, I mean, when you're in that place for 365 days, like, you get to know the faces and, and the folks around there. Um, it really, I think most of my relationships were built with the the military guys, the Afghan army guys or Afghan police or whoever. Um, and and I didn't really make I didn't make many of those connections like that. I you know where I was really connected to those guys until that deployment with the SVAB. Um, and that deployment, 
I got to know all of those guys. Like, and I'm talking like from the from their brigade commander down to you know at the soldier level. Like, we it was a it was that was when we started developing like some real personal relationships. And um, I'm like I'm friends with some of those guys on Facebook now. Like that's how far we've come in the world. <laughs> since since the first time I went over there um like some of those Afghan guys that I was there with advising and, and doing that stuff with with the SFAB like I'm friends with them on Facebook like I've got a couple of them uh Major Imal he calls me on video messenger and like he's seen my wife and kids and you know and we sit there and chat he speaks a little bit of broken English here and there and He's an artillery guy, so there's obviously there's a little bit of animosity. Me being an infantryman, and <laughs> um, but no, like yeah, it's um, like there are definitely uh, there there are people over there that I care very much about. Like I I spent nine months with that guy, you know, trying to get this thing right, and so there's there's definitely some bonds and and stuff there. What that values do we share with those guys? Really, all of them. It, it's. <laughs> It's weird when I when I sit and listen to to folks talk about, you know, well, Muslims do this or they do that or, man, at the end of the day, like we're we're so similar, like you have no idea. I, I sat and talked with some of their religious leaders in that country, like in villages here or there, and we would talk about you know the Bible versus the Quran and, and you know, what this says versus what that says. And you'd be amazed at how much of it lines up, like how much of the same stuff we really believe. Um, and it, look, you're friends with me on Facebook. You've seen some of the debates and stuff I get into on there. And, and it's really quite entertaining. I it's, might add. it's funny to sit and listen to people talk about stuff that they really have no idea about. I mean, it, it's at this point, it's entertainment to me, but really, um, and don't get me wrong, like, there are things that happen in the Middle East and in that part of the world that, like, we would look at and go, like, that's, like, you get put in prison for doing the same things here. I get it. But as far as, you know, w what we believe, if you're a Christian and believe in God and, and Jesus and, and what they believe, like, a lot of those things align. It's very, very similar stuff. And, and we talked about that a lot uh, while I was there with them. Um, but, yeah, they— So you found they, the humanity— yeah, they they value. I, I would say this. I think they they may value family and and being together in a way that we don't even value it sometimes. Um, like how many times do we in America like get caught up like Thanksgiving, Christmas, whatever it is? Like we're too busy. Like we don't reach out. Like like that doesn't happen there. Like when Ramadan comes around and and all those religious and all those things like they're all together. It's always. Like that's a big deal to them. I would, I would go, I would go as far to say that they value that stuff even more than we do. You know, so uh, there, there's, there are, man, it's there's so many similarities. It's like I said, it's, it's really funny to me to hear people talk about this or that about Afghanistan, and they're the people that are like me when I was 19. They couldn't find that place on a globe if they had to, but they're going to tell me all about it. You know, so. Um, well, you, I mean, you know. That's one of the things I admire about pe you and people like you. Y'all are willing to go to these places and to take the American effort there, and 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 I admire that. I mean, let me get. I want to end this piece of it right now. I'm not. We could talk about this for the whole rest of the show, but I don't want to do that. Um, 
what I asked you what went through your head on 9-11 and your basic training. What went through your head last week when President Biden stood up and said, we're leaving, we're done, we're gone? Yeah, it was um, – there have been so many landmarks along the way. Like I remember when President Obama walked out and said, we got him. Um, like uh, there, there are all these little chunks of, of, of over the last 20 years that you remember. That one – I've had a lot of conversations with people about Afghanistan and what we did there and, and what we didn't do there in some cases. And, and I'll tell you this. Um, we did a lot of good things. We did we did some things wrong while we were there. I think, I think the good, it's not even close. Like the good outweighs the bad stuff that happened there. Um, I look back at it. I, do I think over the past 20 years that we, that we helped? Absolutely. Like, there's not a doubt in my mind that, like, Afghanistan was was somewhere that we needed. Like, we needed to be there doing what we were doing. Um, I think there are a lot of things that have changed for the better in that country because we were there. But is it is it time to go? Yes, absolutely. Like, I think I think um, that's your opinion. That's my opinion. Yep. Yeah, I, I think it's it's time to it's time to go. I I look at it like this. Um, you're you're an Auburn fan, so I'll use one that's close to home for you. Um, War Eagle, Gus Malzahn, should he have been fired at Auburn? Like, was he doing a good enough job at Auburn? There are a lot of people that tell you, yes, he was. I think I'm one of those. I believe that no matter how good a job you're doing, sometimes some, certain situations, for whatever reason, they get stale. They just do. That's how that, that's how I view where we're at in Afghanistan right now. I like I think we've gotten to a point where we've kind of done all we can do, and it's just time. Like that's how I felt about Gus. Like I don't I don't think Gus is a bad coach. I don't think he was doing a bad job. I just think he had kind of gotten all he was going to get out of that situation, and it was time to do something else. Is that a pretty good analogy? You like that's how a, that's, that that's that's pretty good, man. <laughs> that's that's gets me where I live. Uh, um, Let's go. You left Fort Benning and got signed to Hawaii. Um, how long did you stay in Hawaii? Oh man, I'm <laughs> now you're putting me on the spot because because <laughs> somebody in the army is going to see this and they're going to go, "We got to revamp the system." Um, I spent eight years there, Chuck, and somehow consecutive, no one, no one noticed. Yeah, consecutive <laughs> from. From I'm t- from. Were you like on Maui the whole time? I, on, on Oahu. No, you were in Afghanistan. Uh, uh, well, I was on Oahu, and I did I did do two deployments while I was there. Um, but I got there in February of 2002, and I left there in March of 2010. So a little over eight years. Um, How do you get eight years at that assignment? You gotta. This is one of the things. Remember, I told you my dad prepared me for what yeah. I was getting into, and my dad always told me. He said, "You gotta you gotta know how to work the system a little bit." And so during that first deployment to Afghanistan in 2004, 2005, they decided to stand up a striker brigade in Hawaii. They wanted bodies for it. So what did I do? I re-enlisted. One of the options was to re-enlist for that striker brigade. So I did. So we got back from that deployment, and at the end of 2005, I went across the street to a new unit and kind of started my clock over. Um, While I was there in that unit, got an offer to go and work at the replacement detachment, which is the, that's the unit that like they in process all the folks that are just coming to Hawaii. And, uh, I said, yeah, there's no way I'm going to pass that up. Like that's a good little break for an infantry guy to go to a job like that. So I took that job, which meant going to another unit and resetting my clock again. And so 
the, the folks at HRC, like I kind of fell off their radar a couple times. Um, finally, and I love telling people this story because this really happened. Like this is a real thing. Um, so while I was in that job, I was, I was the operations NCO in that unit. And I had to go sit in and on like the training meetings, command and staff, all that stuff. And so we're, we're sitting in a meeting with a three-star general. He's right there. They're, they're briefing him all this stuff. And this slide comes up on the, on the big screen. And it's like a, it's a massive list of names of people who've been on the island and like their, their dates and like how long. And there I was. Like there was my name. <laughs> And this man looked directly at me and then kind of looked down at my name tape and looked back up at me. And I was like, we're getting ready to move, man. This is bad. And and it was literally a month later I was on orders to go to Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Um, But, yeah, they found me. Um, At least they didn't send you to Fort Polk. Yeah, it's true. Um, But, yeah, they they found me finally. But, yeah, I spent eight years there. And I tell folks – I told somebody this the other day, and this is not – this isn't a joke, like this isn't hyperbole, whatever. If the army sent me something tomorrow and said, Hey man, we'll put you in Hawaii, like I'd probably do a couple more years. I'd I'd tear up my retirement orders and go back. I'd do it right now. Um what was college so, golf can wait a little bit longer. <laughs> what was so special about living in Hawaii? Man, it was well, first of all, if you like to play golf, like there's no there's no shortage of sunshine and warm days out there. There's also no shortage of world-class golf courses to go play at. Um, and being military, like I got military discounts at all. So like places where if you went there as a tourist and you're paying 180 bucks for a round of golf, I was paying like 40 bucks, just like I was going to Maple Ridge up the road here or whatever. Yeah. And so um, that was part of the appeal for me. But, um, man, there was so much stuff to do. There's like stuff that a – country boy from North Carolina didn't get like I've never been parasailing before I had never gone and gotten in a cage and like had sharks swimming around and I'd never seen a volcano or like there was so much stuff there that I was like man this is wild um and I never wanted to leave it the the people there man Hawaiian people are you think in the South, like you think about hospitality and, and when you move into the neighborhood, like somebody brings you apple pie or whatever, those folks take it to a whole different level, man. Like you move into the neighborhood and it's like, all right, we got a roast a pig, boys. <laughs> we got a new guy in the neighborhood. And I mean, it's incredible. Um, I always felt welcome there. And uh, I, I had friends there that, you know, grew up and lived in Hawaii their entire lives. And, and um, you know, they started calling me like they call they've got a term um it's called uh oh, what is it called uh howley that's what they that's what they call you if you're not from the islands um and i had friends there that i'd met during that eight years that like they started calling me their hawaiian like they were like man you've lived here longer than some hawaiian people like some of them are born here and then move away and never come back or whatever so um yeah man i loved it, it everything about that place uh I mean, how can you complain about point any direction and there's a beach somewhere? Like I don't, I can get used to that. I, I did get used to that. It sounds like it <laughs> until the general figured it yeah, out. Yeah, until they they found me in a meeting, man. <laughs> That's pretty good. I gave myself up, Chuck. Like I did that to myself. It's unbelievable. <laughs> did you? Uh, That's where you met Corey, right? Yeah, we met. Um, gosh, man, that that 2004 deployment. We left in April of 2004. I met Corey all of a week before we left. Like he had literally just gotten to Hawaii, him, him and Lindsay. 
um, his wife. And I met, it was like a week before we left. And then we didn't really talk to each other. Like he was, he was going to be uh, our platoon's forward observer and uh, didn't really talk much. When we finally got to Gosney, where I was telling you, like yeah. I stepped off the, the yeah. bird and can't tell you what I was thinking. Um, me and a couple of guys were sitting around talking one night before we went and laid down. And um, I was talking about North Carolina. I don't remember what we were talking about, but I, I was talking about being from North Carolina and something or another. And Corey overheard that and walked over and was like, where are you from in North Carolina? And I told him. And then he told me where Lindsay was from. Lindsay grew up in Kernersville, which is, you know. It, That's his I, wife. Yep. And, I, you know, I told Corey, I was like, man, I could throw a rock from Thomasville and hit somebody in Kernersville in the back of the head, man. Like, we, we grew up right down the road from each other. Uh, turns out we did. Like, we literally grew up 10 minutes away from each other. And so, um, like, that day, like, me and Corey were, like, inseparable after that. And y'all were very different. I mean, you're a pretty big guy. Corey wasn't. You're Five foot nothing, man. Like, he was a little, little bitty fella. But he, man, <laughs> we, could, we, were, we were opposite in physical stature. We were also opposite in that, you know, Corey lived way bigger than his little five-foot-whatever frame. Um, and, and, and honestly, until I met Corey, I probably lived a little smaller than my six-foot-three frame. And I, and I think we kind of we brought the best out in each other that way. Um, but, yeah, the, he, he was an Ohio State fan, and I was a Michigan fan, and we figured out a way to make that work somehow. I, I took a lot of beatings in, in that part of the, the friendship. But, uh, but y'all – you were infantry, but Corey was also he was airborne as well, right? Yeah, he was he was an airborne guy. He was a he's an artillery guy, so he was he was our forward observer. He was the guy that was calling for mortars or artillery, or he was talking to you know Apache helicopters when we had those guys when we were out on patrol. Um, he may as well have been an infantryman, like he was there on the ground doing everything we did. The only difference was he was doing his job while he was also doing ours. So, uh, but yeah, he was an airborne guy. Um, went on to be part of the well he was here at Fort Benning as an airborne instructor and then was uh part of the uh the Silver Wings here at Fort Benning which later on he that led him to go and try out for the Golden Knights which the is the Golden Knights is the army parachute team you know, and um people have heard of the Blue Angels which is the I mean the Golden Knights are the elite jumpers yep. in the United States and army. And what he, was it like when he got that assignment? Oh man, I was yeah. He, That's like being a pick to the All Star team, right? There's n like, there was nothing else he wanted. Like all he wanted to do ever was jump out of airplanes. And and I tell folks all the time, like you couldn't pay me enough money to be airborne in, in the army. Like that static line stuff just is not for me, man. Um, but Corey loved it. And then when he found out, wait, there's a way for me to jump out of airplanes and and go do cool stuff while I do it. And and so yeah, he was. Um, I remember. The first time I actually got to kind of see him in action was um, maybe like Rome, Georgia, something like that. Like there's an air show that they did over there. And um, this is back when I was doing radio with, with Bobby Z. And so Corey came up to Columbus and was on the radio with us that day. And then the next day I went down for the air show and I got to go up in the, in the plane with him and, and kind of like watch this whole thing firsthand. And so <laughs> it was uh, – they all jumped out of the plane, and then I was just sitting there in the back by myself. It was really, like, literally that fast. Like, they all left, and I was back there, like, looking up toward the front where the pilots were going, I'm just going to stay here. I'm not <laughs> going with them. Um, uh, but, yeah, so we get on the ground, 
And they do all this, like they do a demonstration, like they're showing how they pack the parachutes back up before they go do another jump. And then all these, like they get kids over and help them pack the parachutes. And they're like signing autographs and stuff. Like Corey was a rock star, man. And uh, so like I remember like that week was really cool for us. Like he got to come and watch me do the radio thing because like he and I were both big sports fans and, and always talked about, you know, how cool it would be to do something like that. And then I got to go watch him do that. Um, so, yeah, that like that week – like, I'll never forget that, man. Getting to watch him do that and kind of, like, that was his dream. Like, that's all he wanted to do was, was jump out of airplanes. So, it was, it was pretty special. It wasn't too much longer that that changed. Yeah. Um, and, and this is going to be tough probably for you. And if, if it is, I'll move <laughs> always, to this. Yeah. Idea. But uh, Corey was jumping into the Chicago Air Show. Yep. Tell, um, me, tell me what happened. So, they did a... They did a jump with uh, – they had the, the Navy's parachute team, the Leapfrogs, and, and they did a jump together. Um, and they rehearsed this stuff. Like, yeah, I mean, there's so much that goes into what they do. Like, they do rehearsals on the ground before they ever go – Like, and this is day of. Like, these are guys that do this every day. They still rehearse everything down to the smallest detail. Um, that particular day um, – I'm not going to sit here and and try to pretend like I know all the details of how everything unfolded, but essentially what happened is one of the, one of those Navy guys opened his chute, which kind of stopped him really quick. And he was under underneath Corey when that happened. And Corey hit him as he, because he hadn't opened his chute yet. And when that happened, it knocked him out. And, um, so his reserve chute and everything opened once he got to that altitude, and he uh, he came down there way way off the grid from where they were supposed to land there on the you know on the shore there, um, and you know they they got to him and and got him to the hospital. Um, it, like the fall was like that was like the damage had been done when they collided. Like it was you know that was kind of it. Um, I got a phone call. That was on a Saturday. I got a phone call. Like I was, I was sitting there watching a NASCAR race or something, like trying to fall asleep and take a nap. And uh, I got a phone call from uh, a mutual friend of ours that an, he had had an accident and he was in a hospital in Chicago. And so immediately got on the phone and started figuring out how to get a plane ticket. Um, I got out of here the next morning. Uh, I don't, I don't remember when. Got to Chicago. Uh, they literally had a an escort waiting for us. Like. Uh, one of our friends picked me up at the airport. We had a police escort that took us to the hospital. Um, nobody's ever made it from Chicago O'Hare into town as fast as we did that day. And um, I got there all of about 15, 20 minutes before they decided to uh, to take him off life support. But, uh, yeah, it was – I got to go in and spend that few minutes with him and uh, kind of had the room to myself and – um, that was, man, that was a tough day. There were, there were a lot of tough days after that in, one, but that one was pretty bad. In your job, you expect to lose friends and comrades in Afghanistan. You don't really expect for it to happen in Chicago. Yeah, that was, well, that was the hard part of it is, um, I had so much trouble wrapping my mind around that part. Like I had, I had lost Corey and I had both had lost friends in Afghanistan, um, you know, or like I, you know, while I had one of those jobs in Hawaii, a friend of mine was in Iraq and, and I got a phone call that something had happened. Like, so we had been through that with the combat related stuff. 
that one was uh, that was a whole different and much harder pill to swallow. Like being here and you know supposed supposed to be doing what he loves doing and and uh, yeah, that one that one that one was different than than all the other ones. Well, thanks for thanks for sharing it. I mean, it's you know, and that was where you and I met. I yeah. saw a Facebook post. And I was like, "Whoa, there's a Fort Benning connection." And I fi- I knew if he was on, if he was part of the Golden Knights, there was a Fort Benning connection. You yeah. don't become a Golden Knight without having first. You're gonna have been through airborne school at some point. <laughs> yeah, you're gonna have been to Benning. There's no question. <laughs> let's change it up now. Let's uh, let's talk about you. Were, you you go terminal in August. You're done with the army in September. Most people. Go and find a job. I did, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me what you're going to be doing. Let's go ahead and so let's talk about the fun part. I'm, I'm going to do what everybody wishes they could do when they retire. I'm going to retire, and I'm going to go play golf every day. That's what, like, that's what I tell people, and they're like, wait, how are you doing that? And I'm, I'm going to go play college golf. And I'll be honest with you, that was something that I didn't think was possible until 2019, I was with the All-Army golf team. We were in Arizona uh, playing the the Armed Forces uh, Championship. You're like a four- or five-time Fort Benning follow-me champion, right? Yeah, oh, man, my, my name is on the the same wall as uh, General Omar Bradley, and, and he's on there as the runner-up the year he was on there. I, I won the thing three times, so um, – so yeah, when when anybody asks, I tell them Omar Bradley might have been a bad dude, but I could have beat him at golf. I know that. Um, but yeah, we're, we're you don't have a fighting vehicle named after you. <laughs> That's true. Um, I don't even have a part of the golf course named after me. So what do you know? Um, but yeah, playing playing all army golf and and um, I was I was playing that day the the threesome that I was in. I was playing with a marine and a, a navy guy. And as we're playing, we're walking along and talking during the round and. I was talking about coming up on retirement in the next couple of years, and he was like, well, what are you going to do? And I was like, I haven't really thought about it, but I thought I might go back to school. And at that time, I was thinking about going and doing the the PGA's golf management program. At Mississippi and, State. Yeah, and, and trying to go and become a, a head golf professional. Like, that was kind of what I wanted to do later on in life. Um, and so he was like, well, why don't you just play college golf? Like, while you're there getting your degree, like, do that. And I was like, I'm going to be – almost 40 when I retire, man, like that's not a thing. And he was like, seriously, go look into it. The NCAA has got rules about like missionary work and military service, all that stuff. So I did went and looked it up and found out like I can do this. So I immediately start emailing college golf coaches. Um, you were getting some responses, but it wasn't going anywhere, right? Man, I'm going to be honest with you, Chuck. I got some responses like they were nice in the email, but I know what they were saying. They were like, thanks, but no thanks, pal. You're outside your mind. Like, you're crazy. There's, like, this isn't going to happen. Like, um, I, yeah, I got, I got a lot of those responses. One from a, a, a local school here that I won't mention. Like, I, I won't say their name, but um, with a with a pretty high-profile coach, I'll, I'll say that too, uh, basically just laughed at me and said no. Um, so, so I started talking to folks. And uh, I, I got in touch with a guy named Lance Ringler that works at Golf Week. And I was like, how do I get these dudes to take me serious? Like, what do I do, man? And, and he was Lance like, thinks like me. He yep. said, he let said, me let's, write a let's story. Let's write a story about it. And so they did. And um, 
So he got me in touch with Beth Ann Nichols, great writer um, for, for Golf Week. And uh, she called me up. We did a, I mean, we were on the phone for probably an hour and a half, two hours. And she wrote this thing up, and that story hit. And Chuck, I kid you not, in the next week, 40 or 50 golf coaches hit me up either on Twitter, had found my phone number from somebody, my email, like whatever. Like they were getting in touch with me now. And um, what and, kind of and, schools? I mean, and, and, and not all of them getting in touch with me, like, hey, we want you to come play. Like some of them were very honest with me. They're like, look, like we'd love to have you, don't have room for you, but whatever I can do to help you, let me know. Um, but I talked to a lot of places, um, uh, Charleston Southern and. Uh, the University of Texas at Tyler. Uh, I had conversations with the golf coach at Ohio State, believe it or <laughs> not. Um, and, uh, I mean, I talked to so many different places, and it there's kind of the story in the story with that. I, I got to a point where I had talked to so many of these guys and had so many different options kind of thrown at me. Um, I put a ton of pressure on myself last fall and going into the winter and, and played some tournaments and didn't play very well. Like, I was coming off a summer where I'd played really good golf and then, in, like, hit rock bottom over this past fall and winter. Um, and, a lot, like, I'm not going to lie to you. Like, some of those coaches stopped calling. Like, they were like, Oof, I don't know, don't know if this is such a good idea. Um, and then Coach Bryce, uh, Coach Michael Bryce at uh, Christian Brothers University in Memphis, um, he was he was the I'm not gonna say he was the only guy, but he was he was the guy that like through that whole thing, like me playing awful in these tournaments and putting up some bad scores, um, like didn't really waver. And like we we talked a few times and um, and and he he basically got to the bottom of it really quick. He was like, I know why you're playing bad, and I was like, Well, I, somebody please tell me and and he told me that he was like you're just you're putting so much pressure on yourself because of all this attention and all these people and and um and i'll tell you it, what goes a long way is when when somebody believes in you when you've kind of stopped believing in yourself a little bit like that's a big deal and that was i hadn't i had like i've been through memphis and stopped in there a couple of times didn't know much about the place. Didn't know Great anything. barbecue. Didn't know. I knew that. I knew they had good food. Um, you and I are the same in that regard, Chuck. We're going to eat. Um, but hadn't visited the place. Had, didn't know anything about it. And I called him up and said, I'm in. Like, let's do it. Um, I actually finally went and did my visit a couple of weeks ago and got to got to see everything. And it's as good as advertised. But, uh, but yeah, it was, it, it was, uh, I'm, <laughs> part of me kind of wishes that, um, like I could have done without the forty or fifty guys calling me. Like I think I, I probably added some stress to my and, and some pressure that didn't need to be there. But it it worked out. Like I, I found I found a guy that believes in me. I believe in what he's doing there. Um, you know, he's been there for four or five years now, and and you can you can go look at their results since he's been there. Like it's it's been a steady climb. Um, but I'm I'm excited. I I can't wait to get up there and, and get started. This is the point where I say your wife Teresa is a saint. Absolutely. Because you couldn't do this without her and your kids being supportive right now, right? I mean, yep. this is this this is not exactly I mean Well, and the, the crazy part is when we when we first decided we were gonna do this, and I say we, like, because this was a we decision, like this wasn't 
I'm not an 18 year old kid picking where I'm going to school. And like, this was a, a decision that we sat down and made as a family. Um, and when and we you made, got how many children, uh, four of them, I, I, one of them is going to be a college freshman at the same time as dad. So that's <laughs> a pretty weird dynamic in our house. Uh, the, the, the kind of the joke in our house right now is that Austin's going to be a high school freshman with me, or a, I mean a college freshman with me. And, and everybody's the, like, their joke is that like, I'm diving into this college thing head first. Like I've got braces right now. Mm-hmm. They're like, dad, like you're, you're going a little too far, man. And, um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, uh, so yeah, there, there's a, we, we we sat down and discussed it as a family where, and we kind of had a list of like the places that I'd been talking to and we kind of ranked everything, you know, as a family. Um, when we first made the decision, the decision was like, they were going to come with me right away. Like we're all moving to Memphis. That's not the case. We, we quickly found out like, like how hard it is to just pick up and, and move everything like that. Like she's got a job. She works here on Fort Benning. Um, we've got a house that we bought about four years ago that we've like, there's, there's so many moving pieces. Like we're going to pick up three other kids that are in school here right now and move them to it. And so I'm going to go up there for the first year and I'm, I'm going to live on campus. Like, in a well, not, I'm not going to say in a dorm room. I'm I'm actually going to live in an apartment on campus, but, um, but like, I'm going to get the full college experience. And one of the things we talked about in that golf week article um, was the possibility that, what if you guys get separated? And I'll tell you, like, we've done this before, like, during deployments or, or training events to Fort Polk or whatever else. So your freshman year is essentially a deployment. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's really it. The, the difference is, like, if I want to sneak home on a weekend or during fall break or Christmas, like, I, I got that option. I didn't have that option when I was on a deployment. Um, and they can come up and spend a week with absolutely. you during spring and, breaks or fall breaks, stuff like that. And so, so yes, she's about to like, she's going to, what she would tell you that she's got five kids and she's not lying. Um, so she's going to get rid of me and Austin. We're like, we're going to go and, and, and both go off to school and she's going to be left here to, she's going to keep working. And she's got a, a third grader and a sixth grader and a ninth grader that are taking up all her spare time. And there's no dad there for reinforcement. So, so when when I tell people that I outkicked my coverage and like I'm I'm not exaggerating any of that stuff, man. I like there's no way I could go do what I'm about to go do if she's not supportive of it and, and willing to take all that on. So and, and Teresa was in the army when y'all met, right? Yeah, she spent 13 years active duty and and she's a DOD civilian now. So um, so yeah, she the army the whole army life isn't anything new to her and. This, none of this is catching her off guard. I can promise you that. She she would probably tell you that things will run smoother in that house when I'm gone than they do now. Because Dad, I, I like to, I introduce a little chaos and things most of the time when I'm there. And that's one of the things that change from your first deployment to your last is you were able to communicate better with your family, which the communication with everything now, FaceTime and everything else. I mean, communication is, oh, yeah. is a lot simpler. Yeah, the, the first deployment, I was only talking to mom and dad, and we had a, a satellite phone, and you got like 15 minutes, like was your allotted time, and you got one time per week. And during that 15 minutes, we probably spent nine of those minutes trying to make sure the other side could hear us. You know, was, mm. um, this last deployment in 2018, I literally had one of those little wireless puck things in the middle of Kunar, Afghanistan, and could FaceTime with Teresa and the kids. Like, it's amazing. 
in 14 years how far we came with that stuff. So, uh, so yeah, uh, so I, Memphis isn't going to be – that's not going to be tough for us. Like, uh, we're, we're going to get to see each other every day, whether it's on an iPhone or whatever. Um, and, look, COVID, let's be honest, like, might have done us some favors in that regard. Like, we've – We've learned how to, to communicate and, and meet with each other in, in, in virtual environments now. And, and I think, you know, even at the family, like, I'm not talking about just businesses and, and stuff like that. Like, even at the family level, like, we've, we've figured out how to make that stuff work. And uh, so I think we're, we're going to be okay. Last question I'm going to ask you, and then we'll kind of go to the end of this stuff. What advice do you have for people that are about to transition out of the army, still a young man. Um, what's your advice to somebody transitioning out of the army from retirement? The the main thing I would say to those folks is to have a plan. Over twenty years, I've watched a lot of guys, whether it was retirement or whether it was just, hey, it's my time and and I and I don't want anymore. I've watched a lot of guys come and go from the army, and um, you know, it's easy to to kind of sit back and go, man, I can't wait till this thing's over. But then when it's over and you haven't planned anything, don't have anything lined up, like I've seen a lot of those guys really struggle uh, for those first few months or a year or whatever when they get out. And so my first piece of advice would be have a plan. Like do not decide to to get those retirement orders or, or whatever until you've got that plan in place. And my second piece of advice to them would be don't settle. Like it would have been really easy for me to settle. Like with 20 years in and retiring, like I could have walked right back over to Fort Benning somewhere and found a job somewhere on that installation and and made probably pretty good money and and probably done something that from nine to five every day would have bored me to death. But I like I'm not going to settle for that. Like it's not what I want to do. It's not it's not where I want to. It's not where I see myself going. Um, so don't so have a plan and then don't settle for like go like there's nobody stopping you from doing that. So if I can go play college golf at 39, man, there's got to be a ton of things out there that you didn't think were possible that you can go do. So go do it. In the fall, struggling for you maybe a 75. <sighs> well, I, I'll tell you what. I hope 75 is 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 the only struggle that I have to worry about. I'm I'm far more worried about that first algebra class. If I'm being honest with you, what are you gonna major in? Uh, well, I'm going to be a business guy, uh, which I know that's like, that's super cliche, but, um, so I'm going to do sports, uh, sports management, um, with the hopes that at some point when I'm done with school, I can get into a variety of different things, whether that be coaching or whether that be into like the, the admin side of sports, you know, going to be a, a, an assistant athletic director or whatever, um, maybe even back into the golf industry in some way, shape, or fashion. Um, but You'd be uh, uniquely qualified to run the Army sports program. There you go. Like, maybe I end up back at MCOM and, and doing and, and I'm running the all-Army golf stuff. Like, I, 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 I picked that major because that major stood out to me as, like, there are a lot of different avenues for the things that you really enjoy doing. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be a business major. I'm gonna do do sports management. Probably gonna do like a minor in in marketing or something like that. That's always good to have in your back pocket. So well, I, might, I might be here I might be here doing some marketing work for you one day, man. You could very well, <laughs> um, and I'm sure I, we've got a lot of mutual friends. And I speak for 
most of probably all those friends we all are most of them's okay yeah most of them there's, there's always chip siegel uh no but we're all we're all wishing you the best i mean I you, you know everybody is just pulling for you man it's like this is this is a great story and it's like you know i've written so many stories about you over the years first at ledger and then jack jack's kind of jack patterson and rex have kind of taken you as theirs here but you know you're just an easy guy to pull for and and pulling for you hard in the in this stuff. Now I'm gonna do something. We're at a point now, and I didn't tell you this was coming and Ooh. probably is a risk. Oh, uh, uh um where I call it turn the tables. Okay. I ask I ask the questions. That's what I do. I'm gonna give you a chance. Ask me a question. Oh, this is okay. Um wait I wanna ask a question before I get to that one. Okay. How how long have you been a journalist. How long have you been doing this? Since August the 20th of 1983. What's your favorite story? The The favorite thing that you've ever covered in all those years? Because I don't think I've ever actually heard you talk about it. So I, I want to know, like, the favorite thing that you've ever written about, done a news story about, whatever. Because it's got to be something pretty cool. It, yeah, God, man, I've written so many columns. So many words. It's an army story. Mo the 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 most fun I ever had and the hardest I probably worked was covering gender integration of U.S. Army Ranger School in 2015. I remember that. I was incredibly fortunate that General Scott Miller, who is the general who's going to be closing up the shop in Afghanistan, yep. uh, General Miller allowed me an embed. And so I got to see Ranger School at Fort Benning, then up in the mountains, um, and then also down in the swamps in Florida. And I got to watch uh, Kristen Gray, Shea Haver, and Lisa Jaster become the first women to earn the Ranger tab. And, you know, first of all, you should have seen the captain – whose responsibility it was to get me to the top of Mount Yona. <laughs> he sw I think he thought that I was either going to fall off the mountain or I was going to die going up it. Oh, and I was not in the shape to be climbing Mount Yona in the North Georgia hills, but I did it somehow. This, I didn't get all the way to the top. This is how small the world is, all right? You and I here in Columbus together, who was the commander there when, at the Ranger School when you were over there doing that? All-time great guy, Colonel David Fivecoat. He was my battalion commander when I was at Fort Campbell. That deployment we did in 2010-11, he was the guy. And then who was the command sergeant major there? Uh, Colonel Arnold. Yep, a first sergeant in my unit during that first deployment when I was in Hawaii. Like, amazing how small the world is, isn't it? Kurt Arnold had one of the great Facebook posts when – he uh, when he saw what you were about to do and play golf, he said, "Man, if I'd known you were that good a golfer, I would have taken you out on some outings <laughs> and I would have made some money with you." Yeah, um, I, I got invited. I got invited to a few of the the CG golf scrambles after that story. <laughs> I bet a couple times. I I bet. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, and one thing I'll say, probably, I, mean, I don't have a lot of regrets. I've lived an amazing life, and I've got a great, I mean, great family. I don't have many, but one of my regrets is when is that the young Chuck didn't consider ROTC and some type of military service because, you know, 
I've gotten to know the people who have raised their hands and volunteered, even though you did it a week before 9-11. But, you know, I've gotten to know these people who've done it. And I have incredible respect for people that wear the uniform. Um, for all people, enlisted officers, the people I've gotten to know, some of the best people I know. And we have a unique opportunity here. So many of them are here. But so many of them have had 10, 12, 15 deployments. You've had, what, six, five? Five. Five deployments. Yep. I mean, think about that. Five times in your deployments, they've uprooted you and they've sent you to garden spots like Iraq and Afghanistan. I mean, that... I got incredible respect for you and your for people like you and your family, y'all. I mean, that's one of the beauties of living in Columbus, Georgia. Well, I appreciate it, but I'll, I'll tell you this: I, I've lived here since 2014, and nobody has covered Fort Benning and written the stories about that place that you have. And and we appreciate that part too. Um, it's 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 you know. I tell people all the time we don't join the military because we're expecting to get medals and accolades and all this stuff. But it's 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 really nice when you sit back and and watch somebody tell your story the way you have for us. So so we appreciate that too. Well, that that means a great deal. Our guest has been Jonathan Shelty. We never got your rank. What I'm a staff sergeant, no, I, and I tell people all the, people are like, "You're going to retire as a staff sergeant, not, not even sergeant first class or first sergeant." And, Look, man, I'm not gonna like I'm not gonna lie to you. Like I got to I got to spend 20 years doing this job and played a lot of golf. Like I can't I'm not complaining. So <laughs> and and five deployments, but you know, but that I mean, when you look at that, I mean, you know, some people might say, well, whoa, he just never wanted to rise up or whatever. And I see a commitment in that. I mean, I see somebody who said, okay. I'm going to get, I mean, because when you get to 13 or 14 years where you are, yeah. you got to go get the other six. I mean, you just, I mean, 15, 16 years, you know, you got to go get the end of it. Yeah. I mean, I, I tell folks, um, people make decisions, man. Like, there are a lot of guys that were in my position that chose to go to Ranger School or do this or that or whatever and, and, and went on to, to make some more rank. Um, man, 2013, they told me what the All Army golf team was and, <laughs> That halted all that rank stuff in its tracks, man. I wasn't gonna pass that up. <laughs> and you were playing with mostly officers, right? Yeah, in a lot of cases, yeah. I mean, I mean, like the Air Force team—that's all they, a bunch of Air Force captains that don't have anything else to do but play <laughs> golf all day. No, I'm kidding. Um, but yeah, yeah, a bunch of officers that play that stuff. Well, we have reached the end of another Chuck Williams show, and want to thank everybody for listening. You can watch the Chuck Williams Show streaming live on WRBL.com every Tuesday night at 7 o'clock Eastern. You can watch the replay the next day on our website. And coming soon, I'm being told very soon, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or Audible so you can listen to the Chuck Williams Show on the go. And now to my favorite part, the social media. Um, <laughs> you can follow Chuck Williams, that's me, at Chuck Williams WRBL on Facebook at chuckwilliams0999 on Instagram, or just if you want to go to Twitter, Twitter is my favorite of the formats, you can follow me at just Chuck Williams. That tells you how long I've been there. Well, thank you again for listening to the Chuck Williams Show, and special thanks to Staff Sergeant Jonathan Shusky he, uh, for joining us and sharing his story. It's a, I learned a few things about him, and I thought I knew a lot. Um, really helpful. And as you go out in the world this week, be kind. Be safe, but be kind because you never know what's in the suitcase of the guy or the gal you're dealing with.
You've been listening to The Chuck Williams Show, WRBL.com.